Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to the gospel, one of the verses that people refer to in order to describe the gospel is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, And if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. This is a common verse for people to quote when they're questioned about the gospel or when they want to tell people about the gospel. I know this because I've asked a lot of people, tell me, what is your description, or how would you describe the gospel? And then they turn to this verse, and they say, well, a person just has to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, and then they'll be saved. But, you know, I have found a lot of people, I have found many people, who believe that Jesus is Lord, but they don't believe in the same Jesus that I believe in. I know a lot of people who say that they believe in Jesus, but their idea of Jesus is totally different from mine. For example, I know a lot of people who do not believe that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. They don't really believe that. They believe other things. They believe that he was an angel that was manifested. Or he wasn't really God. He was the son of God. He was a child of God. He was a part of God in a certain way, but he wasn't really God. We don't want to say that he's God, because that would mean that God is a man, or that a man was God. And I can appreciate that. I don't want to say that a man is God. I sincerely believe that our God decided to reveal himself and show up as a man. There have been several times in history when he has done that, when he spoke with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, For example, we have a wonderful description of our God showing up in such a way that not even Abraham's wife, Sarah, recognized him for who he really was. What I want you to see, though, is that there are many people who believe in a Jesus. They have their idea about who Jesus is, about who he is to them. But this may not be the Jesus who is the real Jesus, who is the real Messiah, who is the real God, who manifested in the flesh. This is a very serious concern. When I talk with people about Jesus, the name Jesus means different things to different people. And so you have to quantify that more. You have to define that more. Just saying that he is Lord doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Like I said, there are many people who will call him Lord because he is the one who will eventually be the head of a kingdom here on earth. Or they call him Lord in the sense that he gave them the example to live by. Or they call him Lord as in he is the person who has given us the instructions that we are to live by for our daily life. He gave us the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and we have to live according to everything 
that he said, or else we don't really see him as Lord. We don't obey his commandments, and so we don't see him as Lord. To confess him as Lord to those people means that he is the one who has demanded that they are to live according to the law of Moses, and they have to live according to the law of Moses, or else they don't really confess, they don't really acknowledge him as their Lord. They have to stop sinning. He is the Lord who said, stop it. Stop all that sin. And if they don't stop sinning, then he is not Lord to them. To me, to say that he is Lord means something different. When I declare him to be my Lord, I don't declare him to be my Lord in any of those contexts. I do in a certain way, but not in the same way that other people do. Of course, I believe that he's going to come and establish a kingdom, and he will be my Lord as my king. And of course, I recognize that he is my Lord, the one who has called me to a new life that has nothing to do with a life of sin, a life of repentance or obedience, but it is another type of life. I see him as a God who does not want me to sin, who does want me to do that which is good and not do that which is evil. I can understand that. I see him in that way, but not in the same way that other people do when they use those same words to describe their relationship with him as their Lord. So this has to be defined. This really does need to be defined because people have different ideas concerning what this means. To believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You know, if you don't believe that he raised Jesus, that our God raised Jesus from the dead, and that Jesus raised himself from the dead, and there's even a verse in the scriptures that says that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And so which one did it? Well, that's simple to answer. They're all right that our God has revealed himself in multiple ways. But the bottom line is that he was raised from the dead. Now, to believe that in my heart... What does that mean? Does that mean that I don't really know it? I don't really acknowledge it from an intellectual point of view, but instead I've just got this feeling, this gut feeling of some kind that Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that what he says when he says, believe in your heart, I think that what he means is that you are to be convinced. You are to be fully convinced without any question in your mind or in your heart for that matter that he was raised from the dead. Now, how can you be convinced? You should be convinced by the evidence. There is evidence that shows that he was raised from the dead. You should consider this evidence. I believe that there's enough evidence to convince anyone if they're really willing to take the time to examine the evidence. Our God has provided more than enough evidence, and so look into it if you haven't yet. Believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. You should believe that. You should recognize the evidence and the truth concerning his resurrection and be committed to that. Acknowledge that and believe that with conviction because it is the truth and the evidence is overwhelming concerning that. But to say that he is Lord in the sense that he really is and then to be convinced in your own mind and in your heart based on the evidence that is available that he was raised from the dead, you think that that is enough in order to be saved? Not necessarily. Now, I do believe that our God will make good judgments concerning who is saved and who isn't, and so I'm not attempting to give a description concerning every detail relevant to salvation so that we can look at that 
with a total and complete examination to the point where we have a total checklist that we can go down and check off all the items to ensure we're saved. That's not what I'm attempting to do. I'm just simply telling you that there are people who have different ideas concerning these words and the definitions of them. People have different ideas concerning this and that there's a lot more to salvation than just confessing something and believing something. There is more to it than just that. When he says, believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is raised from the dead, you need to know why he is Lord, why he was raised from the dead. The purpose for that, you know, the resurrection had meaning to it. There was meaning and purpose behind that resurrection. Now, when I've asked people about this, I normally get a very good answer, and that is that he was resurrected from the dead to prove that everything that he said before was true, to show that he was really who he said he was. And that's true, but that still is not enough for salvation. Let's consider, what is salvation? What is the gospel? What is it really? Well, when people try to explain the gospel above and beyond just simply confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing that he was raised from the dead, when people attempt to do that, they get into the subject of sin, which is a good thing to do. Absolutely. They talk about sin and forgiveness, that you need to recognize that he is your Lord who has certain expectations of you, and because you failed to meet those expectations, you need forgiveness. That's how it's normally presented, and that's true. I understand that to an extent. I believe that. Certainly, we have failed. We have failed to believe our God. We have failed to obey his commandments. We have failed to live as he would require a person to live if they were going to be judged on the basis of their works. Absolutely. And because of our condition, there is no hope outside of his mercy. We need to be forgiven. And so Jesus is Lord in the sense that he has established the expectations and the demands and the laws, and because we have failed, we are under his judgment. He is the one who has authority over us because he is Lord, and there is no hope concerning this outside of his forgiveness. His forgiveness is the only way that we can ever be reconciled to God. And he is the Lord in the sense that he is the one who has the authority to forgive. He is the one who has the authority to implement forgiveness in the sense of providing it, giving it, and applying it, and making it real between us and him. He is Lord in that sense, in the sense that he has his demands, he has authority, he has executed judgment, he has executed forgiveness. These are elements, these are parts of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. But sin and forgiveness is not the only issue between us and our God. Sin was not the only problem. There was another problem that was established in the Garden of Eden when all of this stuff got started. That problem was the spiritual death of humanity because our God said that in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat from the wrong tree, you will surely die. And he was not talking about a physical death when he said that. He was talking about a spiritual death. And this spiritual death was the absence of life, the life of God, the Holy Spirit of God. That was the death that he was talking about. The physical death was something that happened later, something that was very real and very important. Because if you didn't die physically, you would be here forever, and this is not heaven. 
You needed a way out. It was an act of mercy to provide physical death. The punishment was the spiritual death. It was the separation from God. That was the punishment that he was talking about. So the sin issue was certainly a very important issue, and he has provided forgiveness to deal with that part of the problem. But that was not the whole problem. There was another part of that problem, and that was the spiritual death of humanity. The spiritual death of humanity can only be resolved in one way, and that's to restore life. He has to restore the life that had been lost in Adam. He has to restore the Holy Spirit. His spirit has to be put back within his creation. Now, if he just does that, if he just offers to humanity the Holy Spirit, the life of God that was lost in Adam, if he just offers that and gives that to people, then are they going to be able to keep that? Is that going to stay? Absolutely not, because the sin issue has to be resolved first. If the sin issue between us and our God is not resolved, then the next time we sin, the Holy Spirit will depart from within us because that is what the law of sin and death declares. Just as it was established in the Garden of Eden, it's certainly still alive and functional today. If you sin, you die. And in this context, if you sin, you die, you lose the life of God. So if he's going to give the Holy Spirit to anyone... He must first deal with the sin problem. That has to be resolved. Resolved in such a way that it is finished, that it is over, that it is done once and for all. For the entire world, it has to be completely dealt with. This is why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to deal with the sin issue. Sin resulted in death. He has provided forgiveness for the sin, and he has now offered to humanity the restoration or the Holy Spirit. He has offered to humanity the Holy Spirit that will be restored to anyone who will be willing to receive it as a free gift. And once you receive this Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and you understand and recognize and see that there is no sin that has been left unforgiven then there is no sin that will cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within you. And so you then have not only the life of God within you, but you have His life that will remain within you eternally. This is the definition of eternal life or an everlasting life. Now, how did He do this? How did He make this possible? The way that he described it was in this way. He said, I must raise from the dead so that I can send the Holy Spirit back to you. That was the purpose of his resurrection. The purpose of his resurrection was so that he could be resurrected and he would send to us the same spirit that resurrected him so that we also could be resurrected. That was the way that he accomplished it. And the meaning and the purpose of the resurrection. So, again, you have the crucifixion and the resurrection. The event of the crucifixion was that Jesus died on the cross. And the meaning, the purpose of the crucifixion was that he forgave the sins of humanity. The resurrection was also an event. The event of the resurrection was that Jesus rose from the dead. But the meaning and purpose behind that was so that he could restore to us, send back to us, and offer to us freely the free gift of the Holy Spirit that resurrected him from the dead. He can now offer that to us. 
So you have the problem, which is sin and death, and you have the solution, which is forgiveness and the restoration of life. And this Jesus, who we are to believe in as Lord, as the Lord who has the authority to accomplish forgiveness and resurrection, this is the Jesus who we are to believe in. This is the Jesus who we are to trust in. This is the resurrection that we are to believe in, and this is the salvation that he is offering to us. And if we will believe and trust in him, we will believe what he has said concerning this. Then he has promised that he will save us at the moment that we believe him. When you know Jesus according to that gospel, when you know the resurrection according to that gospel, then When you read Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it has a different meaning to it. In verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. What does he believe? He believes in the forgiveness that we have. He believes in the reconciliation that we have. He believes in the restoration of the life that our God has offered to us. That is what he believes in. If you believe in your heart that what he has had to say concerning these things is true, if you believe that, then you have righteousness because righteousness is established by believing your God and believing the truth, believing in the truth that your God has revealed. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, whether you confess verbally or non-verbally, however you express your belief concerning the salvation that he has offered to you, however you express that, that is nothing more than confirmation of the salvation that you truly have. It's not the confession that results in salvation. It is the whole package that results in salvation. And one thing that I have definitely seen is that when a person embraces the gospel that I've just described, they cannot help but confess. They cannot help but testify of what God has done for them, of what God has revealed to them. You will testify of the God who has saved you. In verse 11, this is Romans chapter 10, verse 11, it says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed if you believe in the right God. You won't be disappointed if you believe in the true gospel. You won't be disappointed if you believe that you have been totally forgiven and you have been resurrected. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't believe that, and so they live in a sense of disappointment. They do. There are many people who struggle with the disappointment of being a Christian, that it is a disappointment. And I can understand that because what they believe is really disappointing. They don't believe the gospel. They might believe part of it. They might believe that they've been forgiven, but they don't really believe that they've been resurrected. They believe that Jesus was resurrected, but they don't believe that they were resurrected. They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the purpose of it, which was to resurrect them. And so they should be disappointed because they are not living according to the new covenant. And if you don't live according to the new covenant, if you don't live according to the true Jesus, if you don't live according to the true gospel, according to the forgiveness that you have, you have nothing to look forward to but disappointment. 
Nothing to look forward to but disappointment because you cannot walk and live in the newness of life. For example, if you don't believe that the sin issue between you and your God is totally resolved, then you are going to live in disappointment. First of all, because you're going to continually disappoint God. Second of all, because what else do you expect him to show you? What else do you expect him to reveal to you? How is he going to show you who he is as a person when you don't even believe that? How is he going to reveal to you the love that he has for you and for others when love does not keep any records of wrongs, but you think that he's still keeping records of your wrongs? How is that going to be possible? It's not going to be possible. You are going to be disappointed and you will live your entire life in disappointment because you know. You know deep down inside that there's a God. You know that Jesus is alive. And the longer you live, the less you seem to know of him, the further you seem to be from your God than when you first got saved. And you're right. In your own mind, you are. Not in the true sense, because he will fulfill his promise and he will always be with you. But you will never be able to hear from him, to learn from him, to grow in him. It cannot be possible because you do not believe the fundamental foundation for everything which is forgiveness you don't really believe in that you believe in a forgiveness that is not real you believe in a temporary forgiveness you believe in a provisional forgiveness you believe in a forgiveness if if you confess if you apologize if you this if you that that's the kind of forgiveness you believe in but there's another kind of forgiveness which says it's over it's finished and it's never going to be an issue ever again. Let's get on with our life. Let's get on with living. There is a new life to live in and you will never walk through that door that was open to you so that you could walk through it because you don't believe in the complete forgiveness of sins. It's as simple as that. You will live in disappointment. You will. And you may very well be saved, but you will still live in disappointment. And of course, those who are not saved will of course always be condemned to experience disappointment because they have needs. They are empty. They are unfulfilled. And our God created this world in such a way that there is nothing in it that will ever meet the deepest needs of a person's heart. There is nothing in this world that will ever fulfill the depths of an individual the emptiness that is within them. He has not created anything in this world that will accomplish that because he is reserving you for himself and himself alone. And if you will not submit to him and the truth that he has revealed, then you will be empty. That is the way things are. That is the way things will be. So if a person is lost, they will live in disappointment. God created them to be disappointed. He created them to be empty and unfulfilled until they turn to him for who he is and believe the truth that he has revealed. That is the way things are. And for those believers, those Christians who believe something that he has revealed, at least something, and perhaps they may very well be saved, but they will still live in disappointment until they embrace the fullness of the truth that he has revealed. That's it. That is the way things are. In verse 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. In verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But those who call on him and call upon him for the riches that he has to offer, those will not be disappointed. Yes, you may call on the name of the Lord, the true Lord, and be saved, but you will still live in disappointment until you receive the inheritance that he has delivered to you and you live with the abundance of the wealth of who your God is to you, of what he has for you, of his love for you, of his acceptance of you, of the abundance of his wisdom and understanding that he has for you, and the purpose that he has for you, in that he allows you to participate in what he is doing in the world that he has created. Embrace him for who he is, and you will not only rest in the salvation that he has called you to, but you will never know disappointment. You will live with the true peace and rest that he has created you for. Turn to him for who he is, and believe the gospel. But how will people believe the gospel if they never hear about it? There are many people who believe that they know the gospel. And at best, they know a partial gospel. They don't know the real gospel, the full gospel. And their life is certainly a very good reflection of that. It is a reflection of an incomplete understanding of the God who they supposedly know, who they think they know, but they don't. You probably have noticed by listening to me for a while that there are many things that I have said that very few people are saying. Well, who's going to do it? Who is going to do it if people do not know the gospel, if they do not know the living God as they claim that they know? Only those who really know him will be able to share this message. And if they have received this message, if you have received this message, if it has been revealed to you by the living God himself, if anything, if it has been confirmed by him as he lives within you, then you are the one who he has given this message to. You go out and share this message with others. Because by you being the recipient of his message, you are by default one of his preachers. And through you, others will hear and others will believe. They will be saved and they will know their God as you do. And I will continue with this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net